Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you are a friend. We thank you that we can come to you in our weakness, in our needs. And we thank you that you've made a way for us to be right with our Creator. Lord, this morning we've sung of your praises, and we recognize that we are nothing apart from you. And we look forward to the day when we will stand in glory with you. We ask, Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts this morning, that we would surrender ourselves to your word and your truth. That your spirit would reveal how our sinfulness gets in the way. That you would purify your church. That you would make us holy. Make us fit to be with you for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. We're excited to get to know you and fellowship with you. If I haven't met you before, um, I'm one of the pastors here. My name is Stephen Parkin. We are doing a series through Exodus with um, our lead teaching pastor, Pastor JD. And when I get the opportunity to preach, which is about every two months, we're doing a series through Philippians. And this morning, we're going to be continuing that study through this book. And so far, we have been able to see that the theme of this letter of Philippians is joyfully serving Christ. Even in the introduction, Paul begins by declaring the fact that both the author and the audience submit to Jesus as their Lord. And they, consequently, are his servants. And then last time, uh, we saw the heart of a servant of Christ in Paul's prayer for his beloved partners in the gospel at Philippi. How Paul's affection for these Philippian believers was rooted in their joint connection to their Savior and Master, Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we dig into verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1, we're going to continue to see this theme of joyfully serving Christ. What we find as Paul exits his greeting and enters into the body or the content of his letter is the priority of the servant of Christ. The priority of a servant of Christ. And what exactly do we mean by this word priority? Some synonyms for this word are urgency, importance, significance, or a main concern. For the kids in this morning, if you were asked by your parents to do something right away that was extremely important, you could rightly respond by saying, it's my top priority. As an employee, a student, a spouse, or a child, we, we understand this concept. And we even understand that there is a big difference between right priorities and wrong ones. And it's the same in our Christian life, but with one difference. We are not the ones who determine what is the first priority. As servants of Christ, we submit to his authority. And if we desire to experience joy, we must know and believe and pursue after what God says in his word is the top priority for a servant of Christ. 
In this section, Paul is desiring to update the Philippian church about his ministry. And in doing so, he's communicating more than just simple facts or events, but even his own personal emotions regarding the persecution, the unlawful imprisonment that he is actively experiencing. Follow along in your Bibles with me as we read Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Whenever coming to study God's word, one of the most fundamental things we can do is to look for repeated words and ideas. In our text this morning, over and over, Paul is talking about the gospel. He says in verse 12, talking about advancing the gospel. In verse 14, he says, speak the word. In 15, he says, preach Christ. In 16, he says, the defense of the gospel. In 17, he says, proclaim Christ. And triumphantly, he declares in verse 18, Christ is proclaimed. Paul's unmistakable primary point he wants his audience to see is that the priority of a servant of Christ is the mission of Christ. It's the mission of Christ. And Paul models this in two different ways. He first, Paul, models this in verses 12 through 14 by showing that our first point this morning, the mission of Christ advances through personal adversity. The mission of Christ advances through personal adversity. After opening his letter to the Philippian believers, Paul is eager to update them regarding his ministry. Paul had a special relationship with this church. Paul had planted this church, and as we saw last time, he holds them in his heart and he yearns for them with the affection of Christ, verses 7 and 8. But not only were there sentiments in the relationship, but there were signs The church at Philippi not only supported Paul in prayer, but they gave generously toward him in his gospel ministry. And we see this in chapter 4, verse 18. Paul writes, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The believers in Philippi were concerned for Paul. They heard of his imprisonment in Rome and hardships in travel. And they desired to know that he was cared for. So they sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, to minister to him and deliver their financial gift. Naturally, Paul desires to write back in this 
friendship-style letter to update his dear friends, his partners in the gospel, he says, regarding his ministry and personal well-being. And we see here in verse 12 how it begins. He says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me. But what is interesting here is that Paul doesn't start by diving into all the details. He's not interested in telling them the mere facts about his imprisonment, but rather the miraculous facts about God's working through his imprisonment. Paul is experiencing persecution and injustice. Think about it. Paul's chains clanking together with each stroke he writes. What better circumstances could there be to vent about his status as a victim? This is wrong. Clearly, Paul was getting the short end of the stick, we would say. Yet, Paul wants these Philippian believers to know something much more important. Paul continues in verse 12 by saying, What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Later in Paul's life, he would write to his son in the faith, Timothy, to communicate this same attitude. 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, Remember Jesus Christ as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But hear what Paul says. But the word of God is not bound. It's not bound. Even though he was in prison, the gospel was prevailing. Even amidst extremely discouraging, difficult circumstances, Paul is encouraged by the expanding evangelism in Rome. The good news of salvation through Jesus Christ was spreading. Paul was so radically focused on the mission of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ that he was able to see God's purposes fulfilled in his pain. It's interesting that Paul didn't question God's sovereignty when things got hard, but rather God's sovereignty was the source of comfort, strength, and encouragement for the servant of Christ when suffering happened. Notice how he says here in verse 12, what has happened to me. The implication is that God is involved and has Paul right where he wants him. Later in verse 16, he said it this way, I am Put here, he said, for the defense of the gospel. And we know from Acts 23, verse 11, Paul was told this very thing by the Lord back in Jerusalem. Luke records for us in Acts 23, 11, the following night the Lord stood by him, referring to Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul's imprisonment was perfectly serving God's purposes. And God's purpose was to share the message that Jesus is Lord. But I think we could all agree. This seems contrary to our way of thinking, contrary to our way of planning. How could beatings, false accusations, shipwreck and starvation and imprisonment help advance the gospel. 
It's interesting, this word in verse 12, he says, really. It's meant to capture this sort of unexpected result. It's not meant to indicate the degree in which Paul, Paul's difficulty serves God's purposes, but rather to contrast what the Philippians would have expected. The Philippians would have expected gospel ministry to be hindered or halted and for Paul to be distraught. Some other translations help capture this idea by saying, what has happened to me has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel. Or the NIV says, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Due to this surprising nature of the advancement of the gospel, Paul proceeds in the next two verses to state how. How the gospel is advancing through his imprisonment. And we know this because he uses the phrase, so that, at the beginning of 13. Paul continues to introduce two groups of people as points of evidence for the advancement of the gospel. And he points out two groups, unbelievers and believers. Those who are not servants of Christ and those who are servants of Christ. First group he, he notices here in verse, or mentions here in verse 13 is the non-Christians. Let's read verse 13 again. So that has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. As Paul aims to testify to the Philippians what God is doing specifically in advancing the gospel, he first points out the way in which Christ is being made known to these Roman citizens. During Paul's imprisonment in Rome, he would have been under house arrest. But instead of a little electronic ankle bracelet, he would have had a praktorian guard chained to him at all times. These soldiers in Rome served as personal bodyguards and intelligence agents for the Roman emperor. And Paul was constantly chained to one of them at a time on a rotating shift. And because of this setup, Paul was actually able to tell soldier after soldier about who Christ was. And that he was imprisoned, he said, for Christ. That was Paul's purpose for being there. But Paul goes even further to indicate that not only did the imperial guard know Paul was in prison for Christ, but he says it became known to all the rest or to everyone else. This is referring to another group of people outside the guards. This most likely is referring to others who dealt with the legal affairs or would have been somehow aware and involved in the upcoming hearing of Paul. Paul was a public figure. He had been running around the empire, causing some commotion in every town he went. Naturally, his imprisonment would have been a national spectacle of sorts, and Paul recognized that God was using this moment to make Christ known throughout the Gentile nations, just as he commissioned Paul to do back at his conversion on the road to Damascus. Luke records in chapters 22 and 26 of Exodus how Christ was sending Paul specifically to the Gentiles. Paul knew the mission that he was called to, and it allowed him to see how God was advancing the gospel and how to actively pursue that mission despite difficult and limiting circumstances. But Paul not only points out how Christ is being made known externally, but he was 
wanting us to see how God is using his imprisonment internally. That is, the impact on other believers in the church at Rome. Look with me again at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The second group Paul points out as evidence for the advancement of the gospel is the believers in Rome who were emboldened to proclaim the gospel. Note here that the confidence of these fellow believers in Rome was not placed in Paul himself. These Christians are not rallying around Paul, trying to start a revolution. Paul's our leader. But rather, they're growing in confidence, he says, in the Lord. The Lord is the grounds by which they are becoming confident. And Paul's imprisonment is simply an instrument God used to produce this fruit in their lives. But some might ask, why would they become more bold? seems to me that if I were in their shoes, it might cause me to shrink back. I like not being chained to a Praetorian guard 24-7. It's interesting here on this theme today of repeated words. Verse 14, he says three times they're becoming confident in the Lord. They are much more bold. And he says that they spoke the word without fear. There's no mistaking the results here. You see, these brothers are also servants of Christ. Which means Christ is their Lord and Master. Listen to the confident testimony of the psalmist. Psalm 27.1 The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 56, 10 and 11. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 118, 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The right response of a Christian in persecution is courage, not cowardice. The right response is faith in our faithful God, not fear of man. And as they hear of Paul's imprisonment for proclaiming Christ, they didn't cower and become silent, but fearlessly they would speak the word, that is, meaning the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came to die for sinners, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Although from a worldly perspective, we would say that Paul was being put on the bench, so to speak. From God's perspective, he was working through Paul and raising up an army of proclaimers that with confidence in their Lord would advance the gospel message in the very heart of the Roman Empire. In this first section, Paul is stating and proving the point that the mission of Christ advances through personal adversity. And he evidenced it by the progressing message of Christ both to non-Christians and through fellow Christians. 
based on these verses, we ought to ask ourselves, am I looking for God's purposes in my difficult circumstances? Do I see the gospel advancing in my relationships, at work, at home, among my peers? For some this morning, advancing the gospel seems like a job for the professionals. Let me remind you of our mission statement based on scripture here at Redemption Hill Church. We are called to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. For those of you that are church members here, we have you sign a church covenant that has several statements based on scripture. I'd like to read one this morning. It says, because Jesus sends us into the world as he was sent into the world, I will adopt the mindset of a missionary, testifying in both word and deed to the grace and mercy of God. What we find in scripture is that as believers, we are all called in scripture to be witnesses, to be ambassadors for Christ. I like the pithy way that Eric Little states it. We are all missionaries. Wherever we go, we are either bringing people nearer to Christ or we're repelling them from Christ. Are you able to say that God is advancing the gospel through you in the circumstances he has placed you today? It's worth noting that Paul did not measure the advancement of the gospel in relation to conversions or baptisms or church members. There's no head count. He was all about spreading the seed of the gospel and trusting God to do the work in saving his people. Why do you think God has you where he does today? For some of you, you're in difficult jobs, difficult bosses. Some of you have difficult teachers and school tasks that seem insurmountable. Maybe for some of parents here, you're dealing with a rebellious child. Some of you are dealing with constant physical pain, and some of you are discouraged by besetting sins. We must remember that God is at work accomplishing his mission through your circumstances. And if we are missing joy in our experience as servants of Christ, it's because too often we are the ones who get off mission. We substitute our goals and we make what we want the top priority. We make our plan the plan. We make our mission the mission. And friends, this is the idolatry of self. We must recognize it as sin, repent from it, and turn to Christ for forgiveness as we embrace Christ's mission for Christ's servants. People at your work, at your school, at your neighborhood, they ought to know that God has put you there primarily and preeminently for the purpose of proclaiming Christ. We often operate under the impression that our lives don't really impact others. Friends, that's a lie. We either strive for ultimate impact or we think we have zero impact. And that's pride and self-pity. What if you had a five-year-old that followed you around all day? Some of you moms do. 
would they pick up from your life, that is, the words you say, the actions you take, the decisions you make, that Jesus Christ is who you live your entire life for? Would it be evident to a five-year-old? Or would they observe that Jesus Christ is simply the flavor of the day on Sundays? A servant of Christ, someone who has been miraculously transformed by God's saving grace, lives for the mission of Christ by the grace of Christ. Paul has, to this point, provided proof both externally and internally that God is advancing the gospel of Christ through Paul's imprisonment. Both the content of the gospel and the courage in spreading the gospel is growing. This is the first way in which Paul models that the priority of a servant of Christ is the mission of Christ. By showing that the mission of Christ advances through personal adversity. It's not stopped. But Paul continues in these next verses to zoom in on the discussion of these believers mentioned in verse 14. And he specifically wants to point out the motives of two different groups. What we find in verses 15 through 18 is the second way Paul models this priority. And it's by showing that the mission of Christ is rejoiced in despite personal reputation. The mission of Christ is rejoiced in despite personal reputation. Verse 15 introduces these two groups. Look with me again. Paul writes, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Within the group of believers that are being courageous with the gospel, Paul identifies those with either good or bad motives toward him personally. First group we're going to look at this morning is those who preach Christ from goodwill. Paul continues describing them in verse 16. He writes, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Paul takes note here that several Roman believers that grew in confidence proclaiming Christ did so in goodwill and love for him. These goodwill preachers, we could call them, were acknowledging with Paul that God had placed him there in captivity for the defense of the gospel. Just as he mentioned earlier in verse 7 and again here in verse 16. It's interesting that Paul's prayer for the Philippians right before this in verse 9 mentions the idea of believers growing in love with knowledge and discernment. Look with me at verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Our verses this morning or a practical example of how Christians need to apply these things in real life. These goodwill preachers loved Paul, and because they knew what God had put him for, put him in prison for, was to stand for Christ, that motivated them in love and goodwill towards him. But what about these ill-will preachers? Based on verse 14, these proclaimers are members of the Christian community in the city where Paul is imprisoned. So how could there be Christians in Rome preaching Christ from envy and rivalry? 
Paul continues to explain this group in verse 17. He says, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. The definition of envy is that someone is set more on depriving someone else of something they have than obtaining what someone else has for themselves. We would say that an envious person says in their heart, I'm more interested in you losing something than me gaining something. These preachers with sinful motives saw Paul's imprisonment as their opportunity to shine. They wanted to strive for the most influential minister of the year. They liked seeing Paul demoted in their eyes and saw themselves in competition with Paul, not as comrades. It's interesting that Paul did not plant this church in Rome, but he was eager to come and visit, as he mentioned in his letter to them, the book of Romans. This may account for this sort of dissenting view of Paul as someone with prowess and a powerful ministry rap sheet coming into town. So why doesn't Paul, a called and commissioned apostle of Jesus Christ, just drop the hammer on these ill will preachers? Well, we know from Paul's other writings that if they were not preaching the true gospel, he would have shut them down, just like he did in his letter to Galatia. Galatians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul writes, And as we have said before, so say I now again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Very strong language. Paul would never approve of or compromise on the content of the gospel message. It was of utmost importance to him. We see this expressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And later in chapter 15, he would say, I delivered to you of first importance, the gospel. Paul here was discerning. These ill will preachers were not anti-Christ. They were simply anti-Paul. Paul knew their sinful motive of selfish ambition, trying to strive and climb the ladder, and even their desire to add to his afflictions in prison. But he also knew God's purpose of spreading the gospel was more important than his own personal reputation. Paul was already in constant chains by the hands of Roman guards. And now on top of that, he was being wrongly maligned and marginalized even by other Christians. And it is at this point that Paul speaks to how he feels. It is here in verse 18 that Paul speaks up, not just about the evidence for how the advancement of the gospel is progressing, but how he personally responds regarding the personal cost to himself. In light of the loss of personal freedom and personal reputation, Look at what Paul says here in verse 18. What then? 
How should I respond? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. Notice how Paul doesn't simply dismiss hardship and mistreatment, just try to put a fake smile on and try to keep up morale in Philippi. No, he was saying along with Joseph in the Old Testament, they are meaning it for evil, but God is meaning it for good. And because God's purpose of proclaiming Christ is advancing, that God's purpose is prevailing, my heart as a servant of Christ explodes with joy. Paul is so wrapped up in being a servant of Christ and he's so wrapped up in advancement of Christ, he's able to say, it's not about me. It's all about Christ. It's all about him. So no matter what the person's motives are, I can rejoice when Christ is truly proclaimed. This sort of radical unity with Christ, where Christ is your greatest treasure, is the seed that bears the fruit of joy even in the midst of difficult and even defaming circumstances. Do you prioritize the proclamation of Christ over personal significance? This has been a hard question to wrestle with in my heart this week. Particularly, do you fear sharing the gospel because of what others might think of you? Friends, if we do, we're caring about what others think more than what God thinks. We're more concerned with getting along rather than getting the gospel out. Let me encourage you to evaluate your heart and notice that the fear of man will always extinguish fervency for Christ. Always. Do you refuse to thank God or maybe you minimize the work he is doing through other believers? Friends, that's personal significance. I'm more important with me looking a certain way in the eyes of other people, than with the gospel and the proclamation of it going forth and advancing. A statement I've been meditating on as I've been preparing and learning for uh, this sermon and just growing and understanding what pastoral ministry calls for. A statement I've been praying through this week, and it holds true with Scripture is that you cannot love significance and serve Christ. You cannot love personal significance and serve Christ. They are opposed to one another. You either are serving yourself or you're serving Christ. Friends, the world we live in very much wants you to be silent. And it's ramping up more and more. This idea of tolerance really just means you be quiet, you keep to yourself. 
and our sinfulness, our fear of man, only applauds that message. We need to see and savor Christ if we're going to conquer our sinful hearts and fight against this world that tells you to be quiet. There's a movie that came out about five years ago, and uh, it's about some missionaries that were sent to Japan. And these missionaries go over there looking for a missionary that had been sent previously, and he went dark. They couldn't, they lost communication. He was kind of behind enemy lines, and there was lots of resistance. And the two missionaries that go, one of them dies in persecution for the gospel, and one of them recants. One of them apostatizes. Why in this movie? <laughs> and what was so, I was so angry at the end of this movie, because the guy that apostatizes, he, gets, he goes to the dark side, right? He's on the bad team, and he's actually helping the Japanese government, like, sift out Christians and find Christian material and, and basically betray these, these believers, these true believers. And at the end of the movie, he dies, right? He's in a casket of sorts. It was like a basket. And the camera like zooms in through the basket and, and in his hand, there's like this necklace and it's got a wooden cross in it. The message this movie is wanting us to hear is that it's okay. You can believe what you want. Just don't force it on anybody else. Don't talk about it with anybody else. You can be in any career path. You can think and believe however you want. You just don't need to force it on people. Friends, that is not what we are called to. That's not what the Spirit of Christ does in the servant of Christ. The movie title is Silence. That's the message our world is proclaiming to you. And we ought to shout back with confidence like a roaring lion, Jesus died to save sinners. Will you believe in him? He is the only way. Be reconciled to God. That's the ministry we're about. And friends, when we love Christ more than personal significance, we will shout back. We will spread the gospel and we will pray fervently that he will do the work to save sinners, to bring them into right relationship with himself. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we meditate on what Christ has done for us personally, that is when our hearts can overflow with love toward others. It's not this pick yourself up by your bootstraps, try harder, overcome your fears, just kind of jump into it. But it's, it's an act of faith. And it's a conscious effort to say, I'm not going to submit to my flesh. I'm going to serve Christ today. And I'm going to pray, God, help me to see my sinful heart and to fight against it so that I might love you more. So that others might know the reason I'm alive, the reason you saved me is to declare the glories of Christ. It's important for us to recognize that this idea of evangelism is not just for vocational ministry. It's for all of us. All of us who have been saved are called to this mission. And if we, for a moment, get off, minish, off mission and just don't focus on proclaiming Christ, that's the minute the heartbeat of our church stops beating. 
It's of utmost importance. It's the top priority according to scripture. Evangelism should be seen and often is forgotten of as a spiritual discipline in the lives of a believer. I think sometimes we wrestle with why don't I continue in this fervency for loving and studying and seeing God as revealed in his word and my prayer time is really just waning and struggling and but if you think about your week and you think about all the times you shut your mouth when you had an opportunity to proclaim Christ, you recognize that sin is what's getting in the way. There's no outlet to proclaim all that God is teaching you and delighting you in. And you totally just fall off the wagon because we're not proclaiming the joyous good news of Jesus Christ. We need to be about the mission of Christ. Even when it's hard, even when we're maligned, even at the sacrifice of self, we need to proclaim Christ. Despite Paul's miserable circumstances and the mistreatment of others, Paul rejoiced in the mission of Christ. Paul was able to rejoice because the mission of Christ was advancing, and the mission of Christ was more important than Paul's miserable circumstances. And the mission of Christ was more important than Paul's mistreatment by other believers. How important is the mission of Christ to you? Maybe this morning you've been hearing us talk through this for the first time. Maybe God's calling in your life something bigger than yourself. You recognize your own vicious cycle of seeking to please people, being disappointed and discouraged, and not finding true joy. Friend, you don't need another hobby, you don't need a best friend, you don't need the perfect job, and you don't need the approval of that certain person you want. What you need is to be made right with your creator. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for your sins. And scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus came, and he lived the perfect life that you could not. And he died the death that you deserve. And God commands all to repent and believe. And he made a promise. This is the beauty of the gospel. He promises Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. We serve a merciful and marvelous king. Will you acknowledge your sinful worship of self and cry out for his mercy today? He promises to save you. Run to him. Believe in Christ. I pray you will. And for those of us called to be servants of Christ, may God grant us grace to live lives that declare and delight in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have called us by your marvelous grace to be made alive. You have given us 
new desires, and all those who are trusting in Jesus are just recognizing this morning our own sinfulness. Help us to not fall into discouragement. So often discouragement is disguised as humility. And Lord, our hearts are quick to cling to self-pity, but it's more just self-reliance. We ask, Lord, that you would instill in our hearts courage and boldness in proclaiming Christ. This beautiful message that has transformed our hearts and lives ought to abound more and more from our lips. We ask for your help in these things, Lord. We can't do this on our own. We thank you for the cross that has redeemed us and saved us. And I pray, Lord, give us a spirit of fearlessness. Give us courage and boldness. Give us eyes to see souls, not tasks. Help us to love people sacrificially. And Lord, in this proclamation, in this love, we ask that you would save many for your glory. That many would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to him. No one can come to you except through him. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. Pray that it would be implanted deep in our hearts. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.